about wrestling since I missed because of that. Yeah, yeah. Good morning, everybody. Excuse my voice today. I was at a show late last night, so my voice is a little jacked up. But this is Phil Stevens. You're on Iron Radio. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. Nice. This is Dr. Mike Nelson, social professor at the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Cert and the Level 2 Physiologic Flexibility Cert, which opens again this coming Monday, March 20th, for a week, but March 27th. And other than that, just uh, working on projects and actually at home. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so I missed last week. You guys did the show. I was at uh, State Wrestling. My daughter made it to State Wrestling. So, oh, nice. And helping the team there. And uh, they did well. They did good. She did good. She made it day two. So... Her whole Good. team actually made day two. Yeah, for her first, this is her first year of wrestling, so she's done boxing. Oh, wow. uh, this is her first year of wrestling, so made state, made it to day two. The whole team, her whole team made it to day two, and uh, then she ended up losing. And what would it be? Well, luckily, like unlike a lot of sports, that's one thing I hated about it when she was in gymnastics. Like they would give freaking medals away to like. In 32nd place, we have. <laughs> they don't do that in wrestling. So. Uh, you gotta sit through all that stuff. Yeah. Oh my god, it was horrible. <laughs> the ceremony took longer than the whole thing, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think it would have ended up being about eighth, but they they give medals to fifth place, and. Uh, but no, they did get a super proud of her for for year one. Yeah. She got a in the sport, and then uh, ended up with. We have two first place, two first place, two thirds, and a fifth on the team. So, nice. well, she had. I was amazed. One thing I was amazed about was uh, she has a kid on her team, and I've been helping them a little bit. And I was like, he's got to be because what basically what it was is fourteen and under, um, ten and under, eight and under, and then there was like high school division, anything older than that. And I figured Kendrick was on the high school. Side and this kid is I don't know five ten five eleven two forty. What? <laughs> and I was like, okay, so he's in the fourteen U because you can be in the fourteen U. Olivia ended up been getting in the fourteen and under, even though she's fifteen, because she was fourteen when the season started. Oh, and that's okay. The, so she had what they call a magic birthday, and uh, so she was able to wrestle people younger than her. And I was like, Kendrick's got to be that. And I'm talking to coaches. They're like, no. He just turned 13. He just what? started seventh grade. I was like, holy moly, that's a big glass of man. Oh, yeah, he's a big boy. And I was like, he's 13. He's like, yeah, I, I just started seventh grade. I was like, oh, my God, you need to get into football. boy. Yeah. Oh, he's a large man. But I was amazed because I'm walking, looking in my eye, and he's my size pretty much. Damn. No, it was good. It's it's been fun getting wrapped up in a new sport. I wrestled a little bit in middle school, but uh being able to watch and be part of a different sport has been a has been a blast and kind of helping them. You know, my son ended up getting an invite to state too, but we held him out because it's his first year, mm. and uh he only had a half season of practice. Oh, okay. I dominated in districts. It was like, man, I'm not going to make him go just get killed. Yeah. <laughs> no fun for him. So yeah. moved him back to just strength training and getting that going. Just getting him stronger and ready for next year. But uh, and how old is he now? Seven. Seven. Damn, that's so crazy. And they grow up fast. So I remember being at your place years ago watching your daughter. God, she might have might have been only like four or five, like going off the little ramp on her bike. <laughs> yep. Now she's a freaking high schooler. Yeah, that's so, wild. Yeah, that's <laughs> Other than that, I went in afterwards. They got me all fired up. I squatted uh, 675 for a triple last weekend after their meet. Oh, nice. But that's the most I've touched since pretty much a year ago. I think a year ago was my last meet. And uh, so that felt good. I'm going to go in and try and squat a single today. We'll see how it goes. I was up till 2 o'clock, like I said, at this uh, uh. But I'm gonna take it. You going for 700 for a single, or at least, yeah, at least somewhere in there. 
got a, some guys out of town, some Iron Radio listeners are in. There's one listener uh, that I won't say his name, and yeah. he's, he's in the military. But we have large military bases around here, and he comes oh, up yeah. here to do things with them uh, once every year or two. So he'll be stopping in and probably bringing some guys up over to the gym and yeah, get some training in, shoot the shit. So. Do you have a, what are your main goals coming up for training? Nothing. I got a, I have a, we just started throwing this week again. Oh, okay. I was wondering about that because of the weather. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And it crept up on me. They announced the, the one games I do every spring. It was like, Oh shit, that's in a month. I better oh, practice. Man. So, <laughs> so we started throwing this week. I am sore in places I forgot I had. Uh, it's amazing because <laughs> I mean, the heaviest thing we throw is, uh, we haven't even touched the heavy weight yet. So the heaviest thing we've thrown is the 28 pound weight. And uh, it's just a whole different stimulus than than lifting. So oh yeah, especially the speed and rotation. Yeah, and it was the rotation all through my core. It's just smoked. <clears throat> uh, that and shoulders getting used to throwing hammer again. Like the first mm. thing that it was like, oh yeah, I have to ease into this, ease into this with the the arms reaching above your head and spinning in a circle thing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's good. It feels good to get out and move. <laughs> The weather here isn't cooperating. It's no, it's snowed snow the last here. two days. Yeah, it's yeah. the last two days. It was like seventy-eight degrees, and then all of a sudden, the next day, it's oh. snowed. I'm like, what the hell is this shit? I'm done with winter. Uh, I Me don't too. mind winter, but like, I'd prefer it to be over after New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, give me Christmas and New Year's, and then you can go away. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah I got a. Um... 275 for a single on double overhand two inch axle the other day for deadlift. So that's going up, which I was happy about. And it was easy. I held it for two second isometric at the end. And then I have this weird thing I've been doing probably for like the last year of, I think it's when we talked about on the show too. Like what, what is your floor? Like what can you go in and do just every day? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, even like if you go to a punk rock show and sleep four hours, right? Yeah, And so I'm like, if my floor of all my lifts keep going up, then on a good day, my max is is good. So I try to see if I can get close to 90%. You know, in good form, feels good, test well, all that stuff. And then when I hit a PR, my next thing is to see, okay, how soon can I repeat that? And so I went out yesterday, which I don't know if I'd recommend this to people, yeah. but I'm like, oh, I still got 275 on there. I wonder if I could just do a light warm up, no deadlift, and pick it up. I'm like, I feel pretty sure I can. And I'm like, well, if I don't, it's a grip lift, right? And then you're starting with the concentric only. So I'm just not going to move it off the floor because my grip's the limiter, not my deadlift capacity. Yeah. And I got it again for 275 nice. for a single with the easy isometric without anything beforehand. So yeah, which is good. So my true max on a good day with a warm up and everything else is. You know, somewhere above that, which is good. Yeah. Sweet. And other than that, I mean, I just had the the Arnold trip and all that, man, and it's been a busy month. Oh, yeah. But, so just getting back in the swing of things, get training hard, do some Highland games. Yeah. And we're going to talk is, about – go ahead. It is nice to be home and just be consistent, though. Oh, Because now we're going to leave again and, like – you know, 10 days. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, oh, I just got back from all the trips, get rid of, you know, I've been sleeping like a hibernating bear. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, all lifts are going good. Everything's going good now. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're home for like 10 more days. Then, okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so we we're going to talk about cold and hot and just temperature fluctuations for recovery. Yeah. And it's hitting the news a lot. I've heard some stuff about saunas recently and uh, things like that. And like you talked about, it seems like uh, like anything, once it starts getting popular, like people just start hating it for no reason. Yeah. It's popular. <laughs> so that's yeah. uh, an odd, odd thing that the, the public seems to want to do. Um, it's like yeah, people which... get pissed off when their favorite band that was like, Behind the scenes, like they become popular. Yeah, and they're like, "Oh, fuck you guys, you're popular now." Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah especially when the but. the band 
didn't really change any of the albums they they put out. You know, like I remember when Slayer got a little bit more popular and people are like, oh, I remember them, you know, rah, rah, rah. and I'm like, they didn't really change their sound. Yeah, they're it's literally not like they went acoustic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they just became, you know, the, the scene around them. The, the public changed. They didn't. So Yeah, yeah. But, I don't know. What's the latest on the cold weather and the cold uh, water and the hot stuff? Oh, and what can so people I'm, expect? Yeah, so I'm kind of biased. So I obviously have a whole course on this: the physiologic flexibility certification. Shameless plug. Uh, it's just physiologicflexibility.com. And so one of the four interventions I do is temperature, right? So it's looking at, you know, once you've got your you know basic nutrition is good, your training is good, your sleep is decent, like what do you do next, right? It seems like the internet is full of random weird devices or crazy ass supplements or, you know, all these other things. But it was annoying to me because there wasn't really a framework to explain how do you sift through all these different things. Mm -hmm. Um, So my bias was if you look at the homeostatic regulators, so which those things your body absolutely has to keep constant, you end up with temperature, right? Humans are, Lonnie's talked about this, homeotherms, when you keep around 98.6, it's actually closer to 97.7, but, and then pH, like your pH or your blood can't change very much. And then uh, fuel systems, like you could extend carbs and fat all the way to lactate and ketones, like how long can you go without eating and how many carbs can you eat at once? And then breathing, oxygen and CO2. And so if I think if you get better at each one of those areas, that'll transfer to increased ability to recover and more anti-fragile, and you're just a lot harder to kill in general. So in the temperature range, like, so I did the original course probably two years ago now, and I just went through and made sure it's all updated and everything. And at that time, like, people were talking about, you know, cold water, and this is right before COVID, and so luckily I had bought a freezer and converted it and sealed it. And so I was doing my cold water immersion every day because that wasn't going anywhere for quite a while. And then you started seeing companies, you know, come out with, you know, cold water tubs and becoming a little bit popular. And then, you know, people like Dr. Andrew Huberman started talking about it. And then all of a sudden it seems to be like, I didn't look at any of this stuff until again recently. And then you go back online and people are like, Oh, cold water is amazing for this, this, or that. And then you've got all the people that are like, it's just stupid. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like, if you don't like it, you don't have to do it. Like, no one's going to force you to do it. Um, and then in terms of the research, it just gets to be all kind of mashed up. Uh, the, the thing that drove me nuts recently is that... There is studies showing that cold water will impair muscle gain if you do it immediately after training for hypertrophy, right? So kind of like what the NSAID stuff was, everyone's like, oh, my God, don't go near cold water after training. That's stupid. What are you doing, you idiots? Yeah. But if you read the studies, and so I did this in the course, I tried to figure out, like, okay, well, how much, like, muscle mass is this really costing you, right? So... Let's take a super easy number that's way out on the extreme. So let's can gain 12 pounds of lean body mass a year, which if you're a natural athlete, that's you're an extreme outlier. You, yeah. Six to 12, six to 10 is probably more realistic. But let's say that's true for simple math. Let's say it's a pound a month. Of that pound a month, if I get in and I do cold water exactly to the same protocols in the research study, how much muscle is that costing me? Is it like half a pound, a couple ounces? And the reality was I still can't figure it out <laughs> because the one study used uh, fiber type cross-sectional area, which we can't really scale up to you as a human. One used DEXA, which wasn't really able to parse out exactly the difference. Uh, Greg Hoff's lab just recently came out that showed no difference, so showed no loss. Um, so you're left with, I don't know, maybe. Like some of the fiber type got a little bit smaller, but, and then it's also, what is the protocol? So a lot of the labs would use at least 50 degrees for at least 10 minutes. 
So if you just get it in out of cold water in like a minute or two, uh, you're probably not close to the, you know, the lowest one that they've, they've tested. And then the last part was there is some pretty interesting studies from Van Loon's lab. Uh, Carl Fuchs, I think, or Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S was the main author. And they did show that it does decrease muscle protein synthesis. Um, if you do it immediately after at least 50 degrees for at least 20 minutes. Um, so mechanistically, there is some data, and this was repeated in an earlier study also, showing that it does turn down muscle protein synthesis for at least immediately after. But then you have all the people arguing online that, you know, ice baths are stupid. And look at this, mm-hmm. it's impairing your muscle gains because it's changing muscle protein synthesis, therefore never do it because it's stupid. <laughs> but those same people have also argued in the past vehemently and been not so nice to other people online about using mechanistic data and not looking at the chronic long-term outcomes in actual humans. And I'm like, okay, you can't then use it for your argument now. You can state it and say what it is. That's cool. But you can't then conclude they're all stupid and everyone should stop doing them. (laughs) I don't know. So, yeah, I spent probably too much time online this week. (laughs) I mean, that same argument reminds me a lot of the stuff about the – like NSAIDs yeah. stunting stunting muscle growth and you know how it reduces protein synthesis in the short term and things like that and it's like yeah well you know if it allows me to train hard right you know like uh, the, the, that one gets me because well and this one too it's much in the same vein I mean like we talked yeah, about the show story. it's for for decades, high level athletes have been using things like NSAIDs and things like cold tubs, yeah. and they're jacked. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's like it hasn't stopped them. Uh, what about the? Uh, I've, I've seen some stuff about whole body cryotherapy versus cold tub stuff, and yeah. seem to be leaning more towards the cold tub stuff because. Well, my uneducated opinion or idea would be that it's just the cold tub would allow you to stay there longer and basically the cold to go deeper. Would that be? Yes. Correct. Possibly. Yeah. So if you look at the literature, it's interesting. There's not nearly as much on the cryo because it's relatively new. And if you think about the history of like where a lot of this research came from, so a lot of the early cold water stuff, I talked to Dr. Uh, Dwayne Jackson about this just recently and when I was out in Vegas presenting. It came from hypothermia research and it came from a lot of the military stuff because, you know, if someone goes over a ship, how long do they have? If we're operating in cold water, what are our loss of, you know, mental capacities, movement capacities? But a lot of the early research came from cold water, came from those areas. There's some interesting stuff with cooling patients for, you know, cardiac procedures, et cetera. But all the cryo stuff is relatively new because the technology to do it via cold air nitrogen is relatively new. It's only really done for a recovery type purpose. So there's less mm-hmm. data on it just because it's not as round as long. Yeah. And I've done the cold cryo air thing before, and it definitely does seem that you get the the dopamine adrenaline bump from it like you definitely do feel better i didn't find it nearly as hard as the cold water immersion myself Uh, my wife jody did it also um if you look at the research yeah like cryos really mixed on almost any result the only weird thing which i can't figure out and it could be just because there's limited studies in healthy people who do cold water immersion uh, like the study from Van Loon's lab, like your classic markers of inflammation, TNF-alpha, IL-6, they actually didn't change. So there's a lot of people running around saying, oh, it impairs gains because it turns down inflammation, and therefore we need inflammation for muscle growth, therefore don't do it. And it actually changes muscle protein synthetic response. And in two studies now in healthy people who did, you know, exercise, cold water immersion, Inflammation markers didn't change. Now, that may be different in a pathology or an unhealthy population. The data there is a lot more mixed. 
ironically, there's a couple studies using cryo, just the cold air, and a few of the inflammation markers did change, mm. which I don't understand how that is. So again, maybe it's just very limited data. But in terms of the air, eh, there's not nearly as much, I would say, beneficial data. And then on cold water immersion, if you look at performance, it is really mixed. But I would say most of the studies would hint that it probably slightly helps performance. But again, that whole research is a mess because it's what type of performance. You know, it looks like it helps with more speed and power. Uh, there's some stuff that's positive in uh, soccer players or football players, MMA athletes. But again, if there's a meta-analysis that just came out a couple of months ago, it really depends on what part of performance you're actually looking at. Mm. Um, but, you know, back to your point, like we talked before the show, you go to most high-end athletic training places and they have some type of cold water, they have some type of sauna. Most of the people I've talked to in those facilities, you know, a lot of the new ones are just for show, right? It's like, hey, look how many cold water tubs we have. We have so much money. <laughs> but most of the people I've talked to who work at those facilities, like, they do actually use them, you yeah. know? So it's not just like, look at our fancy shit just to, you know, get people to come here. Um, and, you know, the bathhouses have been around for hundreds of thousands of years in almost every culture. Um, so again, that doesn't guarantee that it's going to be efficacious. There's a lot of stupid stuff people have done for hundreds of years, but you know, it does kind of point you in the direction of eh, there's probably something here. Yeah. Where does the research, one thing I remember doing a lot and it was pushed uh, 20 years ago, a lot of contrast therapy stuff. Yeah. Uh, where does the latest evidence sit on that? As far as oh. like four minutes in hot water and then alternate between cold and, because uh, I know that for a long time that was like the holy grail of uh oh yeah of recovery because yeah. you know, basically they said it would flush you know rushes blood in then rushes blood out and so has the science changed at all on that or yeah in the course I I tried to get like a solid answer on that and the answer was I don't know <laughs> <laughs> you know because it's it's such a I. God, I spent, I don't know how many freaking hours, like, trying to figure it out. And the issue ends up being we don't have a ton of solid data on cold water immersion. We've got more data on heat, although some of that with performance is still eh, a little bit harder to tease out. And now you're basically squashing both of those together, and the amount of protocol variations you end up with is just batshit crazy, yeah. right? Because, oh, well, what about cold water? Well, you, you know, they went into a 45-degree tub with circulating water for only five minutes, and then they got into a sauna, you know, that's at, you know, 200 degrees Fahrenheit. But these are, you know, unaccustomed people, so they've never done either. Yeah. You know, or you've got groups that are acclimated. Oh, the regular sauna users did this, and regular cold people did that. And, yeah, it's just, it's almost impossible to figure out. Yeah. The interesting thing, though, is if you've ever done it, feels amazing. Oh, it feels it great. It's the first round good when you're, Oh, yeah, it doesn't After feel good the first at all round, you're, when you're doing it. <laughs> it's it's brutal. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've only had a chance to do it a few times. And when I have, like, man, I feel great. My HRV is better the next day. Like, I've worked with some, you know, pretty high-end clients. And, you know, they've had access to both. So we've had them, you know, slowly work up to and do that. And pretty much across the board, anecdotally, everybody likes it. Now, you can go a little bit too far on that. I have seen some people push it too hard, and their HRV and performance does tank the next day, but they were, they're just going crazy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so what I recommend is pick what end of the spectrum you want to work on first for adaptations, right? So if you imagine, like, the model is a barbell. It's on your right end of the barbell where all the weights are. It's just similar, like, if you wanted to get stronger but want to increase your aerobic capacity. Right. You're probably not going to want to prioritize both of those at the same time unless you're just completely untrained. Right. Just take a block, get better at aerobic stuff, get that up to speed, keep your strength, still weight train. And then once that's up to speed, you know, you would shift over to this. Right. Just classic periodization 101. Right. But I do recommend the same thing. 
you know, if you have access to cold but not heat, start with cold. If you have access to heat but not cold as well, start with heat. Work on those adaptations for one, two, three, four weeks. And then if you want to add the other adaptation in a little bit, do that. And then I have people do it on separate days. So if you, so the simple recommendation would be if you lift weights Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you're at the point where you have access to both sauna and cold, I have people sit in the sauna after training, <clears throat> do some breath work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. If you're doing more cardiovascular stuff, I would have them do their cold water after their cardiovascular training. There's some data that it may help that. Granted, a lot of that is based off of mechanistic stuff, increasing PGC1 alpha and some other things. And then after you're pretty good at both of those, then I would have you do the contrast therapy. And I would start after your most intense day. So if Saturday is like your big lift day, you're training for strongman, you've got, you know, specific medley practice, it's two hours. Sunday's your off day and Monday you're doing upper body again. I would have you do it on a Sunday. Because then we can kind of more gauge your <clears throat> recovery and see what's going on. Um, and that way, we you're kind of already trained up a little bit on heat. You're trained up a little bit on cold. And now you're just switching back and forth between them. Because I think the switching is the component that might be more stressful than what it looks like on paper. right? And this makes sense to anyone who's ever done it. Like, you yeah. crawl out of a hot-ass sauna and you get in cold that... First, when you get all the way in, especially if you're going up to your neck, it's like, holy yeah. shit. <laughs> it's a, Almost it's a, fight a kick in the nutsack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and last comment on that, if people only have access to cold but they don't have heat, a more advanced thing I've recommended people is it's easy to do in a warm climate, but do your cardiovascular stuff or your high-intensity stuff where you're sweating a lot, mm-hmm. and then just get into cold right after that. Gotcha. Um, it doesn't feel quite the same as crawling out of a hot sauna, but it's definitely more of a shock for that switching than if you just kind of walked out at a normal body temp and did it. Yeah. What about the whole cold water immersion for weight loss? You see a yeah. lot of this stuff going around. The only thing that catches me on this is like I'm on here on one site right now, and it's the cold water immersion is able to increase the metabolic rate as much as 16%. Which we've all heard, like, when people go to the Arctic and things, like, like, have to pound calories because they're yeah. living in. But, okay, let's say you get a 16% raise, but it's like 10 minutes of a 16% raise. So right. how long-lasting is this after? You know, is it, does it keep going long after the tub? Does it, it is this actually any kind of holy grail for somebody looking to lose weight? You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things. So it is true with people doing, you know, kind of like the Arctic explorers, that type of thing. Do you have to eat an insane amount of calories? Yes. Um, now the caveat with that is that almost all of those studies and all those reports are from crazy ass people like trying to cross like Antarctica. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like they're yeah. literally out there moving. If the sun is up, they're, they're probably moving, right? Yeah. Um, a shout out to a good buddy of mine. He has a book called Fearvana SK. I was helping him with his nutrition stuff. He's working to be the first official person to cross all of Antarctica unsupported. Oh. Absolutely insane. Yeah. That's, right. Super yeah. awesome dude. Check out his book. Um, so we went through a whole bunch of testing with him with calories and probably doing more of a keto approach because he's got to move and carry all of his own food with him. Yeah. And so food density becomes important. Um, but he's burning a just pissed ton of calories because he's out working. Is that because of working? Is that because of the cold? Probably a combination of both, yeah. but it, you can't separate those two out. Um, so if you look at the cold stuff, this is something that I've been fascinated in for years because the, the first time I heard about this was the, remember Michael Phelps was eating like, you know, 10,000 yeah. calories a day. Yeah. I don't know how true that is. I know people who worked with him and said he ate a lot, but probably not that high. But <clears throat> it's plausible because he's literally in a pool like hours upon hours a day. And right? mm-hmm. he's exercising too. So there is a, 
thermal drain that's on his system because water is going to pull heat away. So I was like, huh, maybe there's something to it. Um, So so who is the guy? Cronice did a bunch of work with this, with metabolic years ago. Um, I talked to him a little bit about it. And the mechanism is, is plausible. But when you look at the research, what I found was I... You ever had something like where you're like, I still want this to be true because it'd be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and probably not. Yeah. You know, what I figured out was there's some old studies where they took people in just a T-shirt and shorts and basically locked them in a freezer for like 40 to 60 minutes. Uh, you know, put the thermometer up their ass, all that stuff. They're <laughs> shivering. And yeah, metabolic rate did go up. If you did that a long time, could you lose weight? Yes. The cold water stuff, is there some data showing that you can lose fat via cold water? Yes. Uh, two caveats with that, that it does upregulate brown adipose tissue. Uh, that's been pretty clearly shown now. Um, so brown adipose tissue does have more mitochondria, which does contribute to what's called feudal cycling, where it's just going to burn more calories uh, for heat, but you probably don't even have enough brown fat that that's going to really add up too much. Mm-hmm. And the caveat is you can do it with cold water, but the parameters you're going to need, you, you have to be shivering in order for it to happen. And if you've ever tried that, which I would not recommend, <sighs> you can have an after drop, you can have a bunch of horrible things happen, you can have your limbs not really work and you may not get out of the cold water. So there's a lot of dangers with that, especially unsupervised. It is absolutely fucking horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's where I was. I mean, like, I think it could probably work, but you'd have to like, who has eight hours to spend in cold to try and, you know, and that's, I was figuring it'd just be a, it'd be a cold times time thing. Right. Like anything else. And then you compare that to even light exercise and you're like, eh, you know, because it's, is it more than sitting on your ass? Yeah. Yeah. But you have to be shivering. I talked to Dr. Dwayne Jackson about this too, because he, he did a lot of the original research, like his mentor when he's doing, I think his PhD work, they did a lot of that early cold water exposure stuff. And I said, Hey, you, you know, you did a lot of the original research. Obviously you're up to date on it. Smart dude. I'm like, can you lose fat by doing cold water? And he's like, maybe, but you got to be shivering and it's got to be pretty horrible. I'm like, no, that was kind of my interpretation of all the data too. <laughs> <laughs> what about, so I've been hearing like infrared saunas became the big thing. Yeah. Um, and now I'm starting to hear a little bit of a backlash against them now that everybody's installed one in their house. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> You hear haters coming out, and they're like, well, that's neat. Infrared saunas are neat and all, but all the tests are not done on infrared saunas. They're done on regular saunas because they get hotter. Right. So, um, I don't know. For me, I know if it's between the two, cold and hot, I prefer heat yep. just because it actually makes me – my joints are sore anyways. When I put myself in a tub for 10 minutes in cold, cold water – like, I feel like the tin man that needs oil. <laughs> Worse so than, like, I can deal with heat now. Like, I love training in the summer. We don't air condition my gym. Uh, it takes mm. less of a warm-up. But what is, where's heat stand versus cold on, say, recovery? So for recovery, if, so the recommendation I had in the course is, <clears throat> okay, I have access to cold. I have access to heat. You have to give me the elevator speech of you've got 30 seconds to tell me which one to do, right? <laughs> Just do some breath work in the heat when you're done. That would be my recommendation, right? That yeah. for recovery, it's split, right? There's not a ton of data showing that sauna is extremely beneficial versus cold. The issue with sauna, because it is a heat stressor, you can go a little bit too hard, and that can impair your recovery. Um there's some arguments that if you become more dehydrated, that's going to impair your recovery. But assuming you're you're hydrated, I tell most people, like, if you have access to a sauna, yeah, after you're done lifting, just go hang out in there, do some breath work, you know, just chill out. If it starts feeling like it's very difficult, and we're not using this as a 
a heat acclimation protocol per mm-hmm. se, just get out. And in general, what I notice is their recovery is better the next day. HRV scores are better. Performance is better. Um, now, you could argue is that just because they took 10 minutes to, like, chill out and do some breath work and actually get back down to baseline sooner so they're more parasympathetic? Maybe. You know, there isn't really a study that's compared those two, at least that I can find, direct, direct. In terms of mechanistic stuff, you do activate some uh, heat shock proteins, which may be beneficial for uh, strength and hypertrophy. Again, maybe. I I went through, like, all the literature that looked at all of that. The only study I could find on sauna directly increasing hypertrophy was a study that they used elderly, untrained people, and mm. they didn't use a sauna, but they put them under this, like, burrito, like, superheated sheet. <laughs> <laughs> and in that study... These people were probably sarcopenic. Uh, yeah, it was, it was anabolic. So the growth hormone stuff, yes, there's studies from Finland showing massive increases in growth hormone, like huge thousand percents. But the protocol they use is absolutely brutal. It's in people who don't normally do sauna all that often. And as we've talked about before on the show, like these acute spikes in growth hormone, Daniel West has shown this from Stu Phillips' lab, just don't really add up to anything right so in terms of an anabolic response from that yeah probably not um, but recovery wise i do think it is helpful um, you can see some increases in plasma volume so more plasma volume you can just move more blood around so performance especially aerobics is going to be a little bit better but i would tell people yeah just <clears throat> go in chill out um, i do think there is some beneficial components to it in terms of infrared versus conventional I mean, most of the sauna studies, not all of them now, there's a lot more coming out from other areas, but all the older data is mostly from Finland. And if you've ever been to Finland, I've been there a couple of times. We went there for a grip competition in 2019 that we were in. The, the word infrared sauna isn't just part of, it's not even part of their culture. Like nobody even knows what you're talking about, right? It's all old school sauna. Sometimes there's a heater if it's inside. Sometimes it's a wood heater outside. Most people have a sauna sometimes in their house and outside their house in addition to it. Mm. Um, so most of the data is is from that. So we don't have a lot of data on infrared sauna. The theory is that it's primarily based on temperature, which I would agree with. There is some newer infrared saunas that do get substantially um, hotter. But if you've ever done an infrared sauna, it just feels weird. Like mm. I did one a couple of years ago. And I'm in there like, yeah, it's not really that hot. Nah, I don't know. And then five minutes, ten minutes into it, I'm like, man, I'm actually really sweating. What's I'm going cooking. on? Yeah. I don't, I don't feel that hot. And then I'm like, I feel like I'm being baked like a turkey from the inside <laughs> out. Yeah. <laughs> like you're in a microwave. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's a penetrating uh, yeah. basically wave that's heating up the water molecules like inside your body. So it kind of bypasses a little bit of the, the sensors on the skin, so to speak. But it's, it's definitely a different thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I know some people who have infrared saunas. We've, I've worked with them, and it seems to be beneficial for them. But, you know, everybody's heat tolerance is also, you know, pretty different, too. I mean, if, you know, whenever we move, we probably will get a sauna at some point. It'll probably be a conventional sauna just because there's more data on it, and that's just you know, what I prefer. But, you know, if you had the option of, you know, hey, using an infrared sauna versus nothing, and you want to test it out, yeah, I think it's probably worth worth testing out. Um, but again, we just don't have a lot of comparative data. So, and everyone's running around now saying, like, oh, infrared saunas are stupid because they don't get hot. It's like, they might be okay, they might not. We just don't, don't know. really know. And then you get into the weird you know, EMF and detoxing and other benefits of infrared. And, you know, there is some data on that. You can look up photobiomodulation, but that really depends on the frequency uh, spectrum you're in. Uh, you do lose some uh, toxins, uh, especially organic compounds, um, be like uh, PCBs and some other stuff like that, uh, through sweat. Um, so, you know, I work with uh, Dan Gardner at uh, Rapid Health. And so if we have someone who 
is we think to be toxic via the testing they've done that we do recommend that they do sweat a lot. Uh, Dr. Brian Walsh has talked about it in the past. And so there is some data to support that sweating may be the way to clear some specific toxins. So there is some truth to that component. What about, has there anybody ever done um, like a heat, a sauna before training? Yeah. That, I mean, that sounds interesting to me just because of the fact I know that like I perform better when I'm hot. Yeah. You know, as far as joints and things like that. So spend five, ten minutes in there, get general body temperature up, and then train. Is there any validity to I want to say, oh, I might get this wrong. I want to say there was a study done on high-intensity interval training in cyclists, I believe. And I want to say they did sauna before... And then they did one after. And I think before was a little bit beneficial, but I'd have to double check that. If, if you look at some of the mechanisms of it, it's plausible as long as you don't go too hard. Yeah, I can so, see that to wear yourself out. I mean, cause right. it is a, you're assaulting yourself with a stimulus. Right. So. It's a stressor. You're going to, you know, lose some fluid, et cetera. Um, yeah. I mean, I've had people who, you know, have a, let's say high mileage on them. <laughs> yeah. And they have access to a sauna. You know, I would tell them, yeah, go sit in there, do some upregulation breath work, five, 10 minutes, you know, get out before it feels real hard. Don't push yourself. Make sure you're hydrated. And then again, it's anecdotal. I'm just a handful of athletes. They all report that they feel better. Yeah. Um, I have noticed that transfers more to aerobic performance and strength training per se. With strength training, I've noticed that it's just a lot more variable. Some people do really well with it. Some people don't. But I have noticed if you're going to do a max uh, 2K on the rower, that in the past, I'd be like, eh, just warm up for 30 seconds. Make sure your movement's good. Ah, don't worry about it. And then I started sticking. Well, I have a metabolic heart and a moxie system that looks at muscle oxygen uptake. And what I realized was that if the longer progressive warm-up that we did or they had access to heat, if you look directly at uh, the muscle oxygen kinetics, the warm-up actually was pretty beneficial in that case. Um, and some people, we had them do a longer, I would say, better warm-up. Their performance on the 2K would increase by sometimes 5 to 10 seconds. That doesn't sound like a lot, but for just doing a better warm-up, that's like a massive increase. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has to do with the most likely the changing of the heat is going to change the local, you know, enzymes that you use for ATP and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think just generally getting warmer, especially for aerobic stuff, has been beneficial. Some people for weight training, they notice a benefit too. So I'd say it probably just depends on the individual. I mean, I switch my stuff to now if I'm. If I feel cold, I'll just do like a few minutes on the bike or on the rower, and then I'll just kind of get into what I'm doing. But normally my first work set, I just take a lot more warm-ups. And part of what I've done right recently is I started adding kettlebell swings into it also, um, just to get a little bit more hip extension, just make them easy, get a little bit more systemic movement, get a little bit more temperature, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. No, this probably, I just thought of that because you know who Laird Hamilton is. Oh Surfer. yeah, yeah. And the crazy shit he does. Like oh, he's a crazy bastard. Yeah, <laughs> like the, he, he's got a, like an assault bike in his sauna, and yep. he'll wear oven mitts so his hands don't burn. It's like a two hundred yes. degree sauna. He's in there doing like wind sprints on a yeah. bike in the sauna, and then all this pool stuff. So uh, yeah, it's it's funny because when I was doing the Fizz Flex course, I. I saw him, I heard from Brian McKenzie and some other guys that he was doing that, and I saw a picture of it. I stuck it in there, but I didn't really know, like, the XBT or, you know, what actually they were doing for training. I just mm. I just saw, like, little clips of the outside videos going, wow, that's a bunch of weird shit. Yeah. But it's funny, like, now I know some of those guys and went back and looked at a lot of the stuff they do. I'm like, oh, we kind of landed on some of the same principles. Like, yeah. you know, breath holds for specific work. They do it in a pool. Um, so a lot, of, I think the principles kind of overlap, you know, high intensity work, zone two stuff, obviously heat, cold. I thought it was kind of interesting how they, you know, it ended up kind of matching up and 
yeah, but he's a he's a crazy person he in is. a good way. Well, yeah, and he talks <laughs> a lot about like training in discomfort. Be cold yeah. or hot, and it's like, and it's not a perfect world, you know. And I mean, that could be. Uh, it's like anything. I mean, I think you you could take things like that too far. It's just like all this sports oh, sure. specific stuff. But uh, uh, yeah, I think sometimes people are always looking for. Well, how many times have we heard it? Like, in, they're looking for the perfect. I can't train here. It's not the perfect environment. It's like, yeah, come on, man. You know, sometimes you just got to train. So, yeah, uh, I've had brutal sessions at uh, Dr. Ben House's place in Costa Rica, where a lot of times we'd go down there. Would be March, and it's cold in Minnesota, <laughs> and like you get dropped off in the middle of the jungle, and it's humid and it's hot, and you're like. Man, I am not adapted to this. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but you know, still train and you know, do the best you can. And what are you? What are you not going to train? It's like, yeah, no, of exactly. course not. <laughs> uh, same thing with like uh, elevation. I remember I took. That oh trip yeah. To, I took that trip up to Denver with Dave Lipson, and it's like, well, let's train. All right, man, it whooped my ass. I was <gasps> just not used to it, and. Uh, I was so sore from that workout, and I don't know how much of it was just I couldn't freaking breathe. But yeah, <laughs> it just takes time. Like I was on the ground there. Like I flew in, we're on the ground for an hour and a half, and let's go train, huh? And I'm, I guess I'm acclimated. Let's do this. So, <laughs> but yeah, nah. I actually pulled all the stats for because I'm like, if you're training at altitude, it so what. You know, sports teams keep stats of everything now, right? Because mm-hmm. it's money, right? And it's performance. So I was like, if you're a home field advantage and you're at elevation, like I think Utah is at elevation, mm-hmm. uh, Denver is, in theory, you have to have other, you know, Sealander people come in and play at your altitude. But you yes. live there, yes. right? So you would think that there should be a competitive advantage to having facilities in those locations and in, in, in different sports. Long story short, if you look at the literature, there's some pretty decent literature that does actually support that, yeah. um, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Well, that was one interesting thing that we got into. It. I heard, God, I forgot who I was talking to. It was some sports scientists, and they were talking about things at elevation, teams at elevation. And a lot of times they will leave elevation to do their hardest workouts. Yes. Because it's a limiter. The elevation it in is. itself limits them from pushing to where they could at lower elevation. Um, yeah. Even though they're they're acclimated to it, it still is a limiter. So the people down at elevation are able to push themselves harder um, because yeah. they're not limited by their respiratory system. <laughs> yeah. So, but so yeah, that was the- interesting. But the whole literature in that area is completely flipped over the years, right? So now exactly what you said is for most people, if you want to try to get some benefit to altitude training, you're going to sleep high, train low. Yeah. Is when you're training, you can get more higher partial pressure of oxygen, which is not going to be a rate limiter. And then when you sleep, you're trying to get the positive adaptations without using drugs of, you know, erythropoietin goes up, like hematic rid, like some of those mm-hmm. types of things. Um, but there's a whole review in MedSci a couple of years ago now looking at as best they could do randomized controlled trials of altitude training, not for people performing at altitude, but just getting better at sea level. Mm-hmm. And... The research on that is incredibly inconclusive and says yeah, it's probably not worth your effort, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was interesting because yeah. most of the studies are also biased because unless you've got some type of room where you can change the partial pressures and people not knit, but then they've got to hang out there, they got to train there. You know, a lot of the old studies would take them up to altitude or bring them back down, and you obviously know if you're at altitude or you're not at altitude, yeah. and yeah. there's a lot of confounding factors and i also looked at if you increase just oxygen that doesn't do anything right so we went down to texas last year we're at this gas station in the middle of nowhere i don't remember where and they were selling bottles of oxygen Mm -hmm. and i'm like what (laughs) and so there's this long line there's this trucker guy in front of me i said hey 
do you ever use this bottled oxygen? He looks at me like, no, what's wrong with you? You know? <laughs> and I asked the cashier, I'm like, do you sell a lot of these things? She's like, oh yeah. I'm like, really? Huh. She's like, oh, we sold out of them last week. I was like, what? Um, because there's no partial pressure, it's not yeah. going to do anything. Yeah. Um, but then I thought, well, what if you could pressurize the oxygen? Would that confer a competitive advantage? And as far as I can tell, maybe, but that advantage appears to go away when you go back to normal pressure. Gotcha. They did some super old studies where they took people and put them in these pressurized chambers. They increased the pressure of oxygen and they looked at exercise performance and a whole bunch of stuff. What they found was their exercise performance actually did go up. But when they took them out of the chamber and had them exercise again after training them in the chamber for a period of a couple of weeks, they weren't any better again. Yeah. <laughs> so it's you know, I've always wondered shit. about, just in the back of my mind, I've wondered about, well, you see old folks and they put on oxygen. Right. And I've always wondered about, like, oxygen for recovery, just added oxygen. And if we yeah. do anything, I mean, it's, I'll never buy it. I'm poor and cheap. It, but. it doesn't seem to, as far as I can <laughs> tell. Um, but again, you've got people that swear by it. Yeah. You know, you've got, I, I, I don't know if this is actually happening, but I've seen pictures of, there's a couple of clubs that do this for cyclists, right? Where they change the whole pressure in the room. Mm-hmm. I heard some rumors that there's a bunch of startups now that are trying to, do this more geared towards the general population where they've got a facility where they change the partial pressure of oxygen to simulate altitude training for general population and stuff. So I don't know. There's systems where uh, I think live O2 is one of them where you can change and go from low oxygen to high oxygen, like intake very fast. That's supposedly to have these amazing effects, but I don't know. I know a couple people who have the systems and use them, and they said that they got really good results. But, you know, maybe it's just because they actually started training harder, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot and to flesh like out. Thousands yeah. of dollars. So I'm like, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't quite understand how it works. Maybe it does. We just don't have enough data to show it. But, man, of all the yeah. things I could possibly try, it's pretty low on the list. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we'll call it there. I'm going to take another yeah. nap before I go train. Yeah, so, there you go. Nap and then squat. There you coffee. go. Yep, that's what it's all about. So, well, cool, guys, man. until next week. All right. Talk See to ya. you later.